Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read together the first 10 verses. Philippians chapter 3. We'll read from verse 1. If you find the place, let's hear the word of the Lord. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness was in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For him I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 10. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It reads as follows. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, my theme today is the duty of the gospel minister. I would put you in remembrance that when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, it was a time of grave uncertainty and trouble for many. The Apostle Paul's in prison. He's soon to stand trial before Caesar. He's being guarded 24-7 by at least two Roman soldiers. He has a death sentence hanging over him that could be executed at any moment. And despite being in prison, facing this death sentence, being denied his basic freedom to do what he most enjoyed, and you think of what Paul most enjoyed. If we were to ask him, Paul, what do you enjoy about your life? I'm sure he would tell us about traveling on missionary journeys, about interesting people that he met about seeing souls converted, 
about planting churches in different places, about revisiting these churches and strengthening and encouraging God's people. Now, despite being denied these freedoms that he enjoyed, he still amazingly, by the grace of God, saw the hand of God in all his circumstances. You see, his situation in prison, death sentence hanging over him, had not broken him. In fact, I believe it had blessed him. Listen to what he says in chapter 1 and verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In prison, Paul was unconcerned. He was not alarmed. He was not fearful about the future, neither for himself or even for the church. He had a real genuine concern, however, for the well-being of the church at Philippi. He was very concerned for the safety of God's people. He had instructed them 18 times in this letter to rejoice in the Lord, using the word joy and rejoicing and rejoice. Whatever your state, whatever your circumstance, he wanted them to rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse um, 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things uh, to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. The word finally means furthermore. Uh, in addition to what I've previously said, I'm, I'm going to add this again. Uh, and he reiterates and reminds them of this overall theme to rejoice in the Lord. Why, he says, to write the same thing is not grievous to me, but for you it is safe. You see, Paul's aware that there were many opponents of the true gospel in the first century. He was aware that false teachers could arise and preach a false message that, that would rob the people of their true joy in Christ. Hence the warning Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concession. And this was a call from Paul to the church at Philippi to be spiritually alert, to be spiritually awake. Because of the presence of false teachers, because of the preaching of false teachers, because of the practices of the false teachers, then he issues this warning. See, Paul has a genuine concern for the true believers' spiritual well-being, a concern lest they be robbed of their joy. So as a faithful, dutiful minister of the gospel, he issues this warning. And if you look at the text this morning under the thought, the duty of the true gospel minister, you'll see that that duty is threefold. One, Paul exposed the marauders of the true Christian. If you look at verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Paul is using very clear, plain language here. Three distinct warnings. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. The word beware means be alert. Be on the lookout. You need to see this. You need to perceive. You need to take heed to this in your mind. It's a reference to carefully observe, to carefully listen, to carefully perceive, so that you'll be aware 
of the true nature of any person who comes by his preaching and by his practices, whether he's true or whether he's false. Remember the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount used the same logic. He said, by their fruits ye shall know them. In other words, by the practices and preaching of the false prophets, you will know a false prophet. And each of these three warnings, while it has a distinct aspect, and I'll explain it in a moment. However, all three warnings can be applied to the same kind of false teachers. And I've already said, notice that Paul is using clear, plain language. The language is vigorous. It's intense. Paul is sounding an alarm. He's issuing a warning. Now, when you read that, it's in the Bible, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. You might think, well, well, Paul's being rude. That's not very nice. That's not very loving. We'll even hear liberals and modernists tell us, but, but that can't be a part of the gospel. And some on the loony left might even tell us, oh, well, that borders on a hate crime, calling someone a dog, an evil worker. I want to tell you it's not. The gospel that the Apostle Paul preached was under threat. The false teachers, with their false teaching, were undermining the gospel. And the Apostle Paul steps up to the plate and he is ready for spiritual warfare. You see, I want you to understand this morning that it's not unloving to denounce false doctrine and error. The job the duty of the true gospel minister is to expose the false teacher and expose their false teaching. Yes, there's a time for silence. But there's also a time for speaking. And when that time comes, when false teaching is undermining the gospel, then the gospel minister needs to speak plainly and clearly. There can be no ambiguity. There's no room for compromise. Paul, yes, is full of the wonder of the gospel, but he also has to issue this warning regarding the gospel, especially when it's under attack and under threat, and especially when that attack will rob and hinder the joy of the Lord experienced by God's people, especially when God's people are in danger of deception. And the Bible tells us to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And there's no light in false teachers, and there's no light in false teaching. Remember the epistle to Jude. Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You see, Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to name names. Alexander the coppersmith, he tells us, did me much harm. Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And of course, in the 60-odd years history of the Free Presbyterian Church. In the past, the Free Presbyterian Church wasn't afraid to name names and to denounce false teachers and false teaching. 
And, and of course, that's the foundation that we need to regain and, and, and re-emphasize in our day and our generation. So, so it's not unloving, it's not rude, it's not unkind. We're reading it in the Bible. Why did Paul issue this warning? Because the gospel was under threat. And when the gospel is under threat, then God's ministers must speak clearly and speak plainly without ambiguity and without compromise. Now, what did Paul mean? Who was he referring to when he said, beware of dogs, evil workers, beware of concision? So some have imagined, well, it's three different types of people. He had three different individuals in mind. That may be. It's my opinion, and the best of the commentators take this view, that it's a threefold description of a false teacher who comes with false teaching. That is, men with a different gospel message to the Apostle Paul. Men with a different gospel message than what Paul preached, because Paul preached salvation is found in Christ alone, received by faith alone, brought through the grace of God alone. Let's think of this word dogs. Think of calling someone today a dog. You're a dog. That, that would be classified as being rude, wouldn't it? Not very nice. You see, our culture, it's commonplace today to, to like dogs because uh, of family pets and family pets, of course, are, are, are treated like children. But we've got to take ourselves out of the 21st century and go into the, the, the very first century. I remember visiting a home years ago in Aberdeen and it had a big sign, beware of dogs. And I knocked the front door. I was an outreach of the faith mission. And uh, when the door opened, it only opened about 12 inches. And this big Alsatian dog bounded down through the stairs, leapt out through the door and right on top of me into the bushes. And I can tell you, I was in fear and trembling. I was shaking like a leaf because I thought I was going to be ate by, by that dog. And of course, I've always remembered this, it says in the Bible, beware of dogs. And so every time you read it in someone's gate, beware of dogs, then you remember that, well, that's written in the Bible. But let's take ourselves out of the, first century, out of the 21st century into the first century. See, dogs in the first century in the Middle East were looked upon as unclean animals, filthy animals. Dogs were looked upon as dangerous scavengers who howled and barked and, and, and bit people. In other words, when he said beware of dogs, he was thinking of the false teacher who was filthy and upholy in makeup. And when the term dogs is used in the Bible, it is used derogatorily. It's not very complimentary. It refers to people who are spiritually dangerous scavengers of those who are spiritually weak. It refers to those false teachers who are out to destroy and tear apart God's people. So, so it's a fitting description of the false teacher with his false teaching because doctrinal error is serious. Its effects are serious. 
It affects the well-being and the safety of men's souls. Hence the need for the stern warning. Notice the words, evil workers. They're not only unholy and filthy in their makeup, but they're unholy and filthy in their motives. Think of the words, evil workers. They're not helping the cause of Christ. They're not there to help the true Christian onto God. They're there to harm him. They profess to show the path of heaven. Instead, they show the pathway to hell. Paul has in mind Judaizers who wanted to mix Christianity with Judaism. They would say, yes, believe in the Messiah. That's great. But you must also keep the Mosaic law in every part. They were not a good influence in the church. That was Paul's battle in Galatia. And remember what he said to the church in Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 and in the uh, verse um, 8. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Very, very strong language. Because that was the battle. The Judaizers, they had come in and they wanted to mix Christianity with Judaism. Have the Messiah, yes. But let's also keep the law. You need to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul said, they're, they're evil workers. And notice this word, beware of the concision. You see, they were unholy and filthy, not only in their makeup and their motives, but in their mutilations. The word concision has to do with the cutting of the flesh. And it's really a focus on one's works. These men promoted a works-based salvation. They were religious. They focused on the outward aspects of religion. They argued that by observance of these outward ceremonies, rites and rules... You're fully accepted by God. They demanded a strict observance, of course, to the law. Now, the Apostle Paul knew the danger of these individuals. He knew about their filthy makeup. He knew about their motives. He knew about their mutilations. And he knew about the salvation and safety of the gospel. He knew that God's people could be deceived and were in danger. And, 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 and what was needed was a firm clear rebuttal of the false teachers. You see, these false teachers denied something. Listen to me carefully. They denied the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is not enough, they said. You need more. You need Christ, yes. They didn't deny that, but you need more than Christ. You need circumcision. You need the law. You need the rites and ceremonies of Judaism. You need the church. You need a code of ethics. I want to tell you this morning, that is not the gospel. It's not Christ plus the church. It's ceremonies. It's code of ethics. If you think of the little sum that I gave you many, many months ago, do the mass. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus, in addition to anything else, equals Nothing. 
It's not Christ plus the free church that you need. It's not Christ plus politics. It's not Christ plus rites and ceremonies of the church. It's not Christ plus morality or Christ plus a code of ethics. It's Christ plus nothing. And when you have Christ and Christ alone, you have everything. Think of the little hymn, in Christ alone. Remember the Lord Jesus, when he came into the world, undertook to offer a once and for all sacrifice for sin. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. John 19, verse 30, it is finished. Think of his cry from the tree. If the work is complete and done, then nothing needs to be added. So, so these false teachers, with their false teaching, what were they denying? They were denying the sufficiency of Christ. They also denied the simplicity in Christ because they denied faith in Christ alone. Remember, faith in Christ, if we put it this way, means I have believed, I am believing. And will continue to believe in Christ. That's the meaning of the word believeth. John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's not the decision of a moment. It's the principle of a whole life. Remember the just shall live by faith. And it's not my faith. Because faith is not something that's natural to me. Faith is a free gift of God, a free gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace he is saved through faith, and that, the faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's faith in Christ, accepting him for who he is, receiving him as Lord and Master, relying with your full weight in Christ alone. And, and, and what are we depending on to get to heaven? It's, I'm depending on Christ. I'm depending on his blood sacrifice. And it denies the security in Christ. Because when we add to Christ, then we're adding to the gospel. And when we add to Christ in the gospel, what are we saying? The gospel's not all of God. It's not all of God's free grace. There's a part that depends on the performance of the individual. The individual needs to do something. What does he need to do? Well, he needs to join the church. He needs to be baptized. He needs to be catechized. He needs to be moral and upright. He, 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 he needs the law of Moses. They need to add something. What? Works. If we want to be or expect to be accepted of him. We need to perform something, a, a, a works righteousness in order to be accepted and presentable to him. And I want to tell you, that's not the gospel. And the apostle Paul knew it. You see, it presented a false or presented a danger to the church at Philippi. It was so dangerous that it would rob the true believer of their joy in Christ. And for any preacher to say that faith in Christ alone is not adequate and that their salvation depends even one percent on them that message robs Christ of his sufficiency it robs Christ of his simplicity it robs Christ of his security and it's dangerous 
for the souls of men, for, for a, a teacher to say, well, salvation is part of God and part of man. Once you buy into the idea, you lose your joy in Christ. You're filled with pride. You feel your salvation depends on you, your performance. You, you lessen your view of Christ. But, but also when you sin then, you feel really guilty and bad. And, and you think, oh, I, I'm unworthy to, to be accepted by God. I've got to try harder and do better. And you're looking inward to self rather than looking by faith to the Savior. And Paul knew that we are accepted in the Beloved. He knew that we are complete in Christ. He knew that our justification is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by the grace of God alone. Not because we have done something or anything. In Christ, we have got possession. In Christ, we have pardon from all our sins. In Christ, we have peace with God. In Christ, we have a great prospect. In Christ, we have a full and free forever justification, a perfect righteousness with which to stand before God and be accepted. The righteousness of Christ. The errors of the false teacher and their false teaching needs to be exposed and challenged. So we need to be aware of false teachers and false teaching. Let it be in Roman Catholicism, and of course we're not anti-Catholics, but we are anti-Catholicism, given the dogmas and doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. We could add into the mix Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, the Moonies, and every other cult. Because when you, when you lump them all together, they want to add something, some part to the work of Christ. They, they, they tell you you've got to do some work or some requirement in order to be saved. And the moment they do that, they're rejecting the imputation of Christ's righteousness imputed to the penitent sinner. We're not saved, remember, because you've raised your hand in a meeting. Or been baptized, or saved because you prayed a prayer, or signed a card, or walked an aisle. You're saved because Christ has saved you. Peter said, Save me, I perish. And Christ saved him. And he gave the glory to Christ. So the duty of the true minister is to expose the marauders of the true Christian, those that would want to destroy them. Notice secondly, and very quickly here, is to explain the meaning of the true Christian. Look with me at verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Now we'll pause there. Remember, Paul is writing to Gentile believers. These people don't live in Jerusalem. They live in Philippi, a Gentile city. Now, now what did he mean? For we are the circumcision. What did he mean by circumcision? Did you think of that? We need to pause for a moment. Now it's not literal circumcision. Because circumcision was the outward sign that God gave to Abraham and all his descendants to identify them as his people. As, as Jewish people. Genesis 17 and verse 10. It's part of their genealogy. 
It's part of their um, heritage and, and tradition, and, and it's a synonymous reference for Jewish people. And it's common, of course, for Jews to believe that God would save them. Why? Well, we're descendants of Abraham. We've got the outward sign of circumcision in our flesh. But that was not true. That was never the case. So I want to tell you this morning, it's not a literal circumcision. It's not circumcision in their flesh. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, God told the children of Israel to circumcise their heart. Even though they were circumcised in the flesh, he told them to circumcise their heart because circumcision was always an outward sign of the inward reality of the heart being brought into willing submission to the Lord. It's spiritual circumcision that's in view. It takes place in the heart. It takes place by the work of the Spirit of God. It's something God does. It's not of man. Look, look with me very quickly there at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we'll read in 28 and 29. It says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Do you see that? That's a spiritual circumcision. Turn over as well to the book of Colossians and we'll uh, look with me at Colossians um, chapter 2 and uh, verses 11 and 12, it says, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Do you see that in verse 11? Colossians 2, verse 11. See, it, it, it involves a cutting off of the flesh and it's something God does. And uh, physical circumcision uh, was signified by a covenant, a, a covenant of blood. And spiritual circumcision involves a, a cutting away. Uh, sin is dealt with. Uh, the, the dead heart is cut off or cut out. And a new heart is given. And the believer enters into the experience of the covenant blessings of the gospel. A circumcision made without hands called the circumcision of Christ. You see, what I'm saying is this is a spiritual matter. It's the work of the Spirit of Christ in the human heart. It's the work of the Spirit that makes the person complete in Christ. Let me ask this morning, think of the name Christian. When we use the name Christian, what do we mean? Are we saying we're non-Muslim? Are we saying I'm not a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew? When we use the term Christian, are you saying, well, but I'm from a Christian country. I'm from we Northern Ireland, you know. Is it because we, we attend the church? Is it because, well, my parents are Christians? I was brought up in a Christian home. Or is it because I, I, I'm a decent, moral, upright person? You see, many use the term Christian, meaning non-Muslim, Christian country, Christian home, Christian parents, 
But they have no idea what a true Christian is. They have their opinion. But, but it's the word Christians used without reference to Christ. And of course we have to say, well, such and such an individual is not a true biblical Christian. Because a true Christian is someone who's born again by the Spirit of God, given a new heart, transformed and changed by the power of the gospel. They've got a new love for Christ. They have a new language. They have a new lifestyle. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. And they have a new loyalty. Their sin is dealt with. Its penalty is gone. Its power is broken. The pleasure of sin is taken away from their hearts. They've now been united to Christ by faith. They're in Christ. And they're accepted in him. They're complete in him. They're indwelt by the Spirit of God. They have a wonderful, full and free and forever justification. And they have a desire to live a life of holiness unto the Lord. Not as the ground of salvation, but as their fruit. Now let me ask this morning, does it describe you? Are you a true Christian? I haven't asked you what country you're from. I haven't talked about your lifestyle at home. It doesn't even matter if you attend what is called the Christian church. You may be good to your parents. You may even enjoy this church. The chief question is, are you born again by the Spirit of God? Has there been a time, a moment in your life when you were saved by the grace of God, when you trusted Christ alone? And if not this morning, then I have to say honestly and, and sincerely to you, then you're not a true believer. And, and you need to flee to Christ because there's nothing more important in the whole wide world. You can know all the stories of the Bible, but it's not enough to know Bible stories. You need to know Christ. Paul says that I might know him. Knowing him in a relationship with him. And the job of the true preacher is to explain the meaning of the true Christian. Notice one final thing. Is to expound the marks of the true Christian. Look at the rest of the verse in Philippians chapter 3. Did you notice how Paul adds in these few little thoughts? This is what he says, which worship God in the spirit. Here's one of the marks of the true Christian. He worshiped God in the spirit. He is a true worshiper of God. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The true Christian has a desire to worship God. His heart has been changed. His desires have been renewed and, 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 and placed in his heart by the Holy Ghost. See, only a true believer would really want to worship God. He'd he, he not forsake or forget the house of God. Even when two or three gather, he, he planned to be there. He'd remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He'd be thankful that God has given him the Sabbath day, a day of rest and a day for worship. You see, worship is the true believer responding to God, who God is, what God is like, and what God has done for him. And, and, and the thought is, I must praise God. I must honor God. I must glorify God. He worships God in the spirit. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on that, but I'll not. He also glories in the Son. Now, notice this word, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. 
Now let me tell you something that's not apparent in the Greek. The word rejoice in verse um, 1 and verse 3, they're, they're two different Greek words, even though they're translated rejoice in our authorized version. The word rejoice in verse 3 literally means to boast. The true Christian will boast not in self, but in the Savior. He will boast in Christ. It's all about Christ. His reception of Christ. His reliance in Christ. It's not what I do or did, but it's what he did. It's glory in his person. Glory in his purity. Glory in his power. Glory in his pardon. Glory in his pressure. Think of the little chorus, he is my everything, he is my all. Remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. When Paul went to Corinth, he says, he was determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He not only worships God in the Spirit and glories in the Son, but he will also be gracious in salvation. Look at the words, verse 3, and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, no confidence in me. Paul was in Christ. Paul lived for Christ. Paul lived through the strength of Christ. Even when he was in prison under a death sentence. Where did his strength come from? Where did his his spirit come from? His supply come from? It all come from Christ. And Paul had an eye to be with Christ. Remember he said for me to live as Christ. And to die as gain. And even in that context. He says I have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in me. But my confidence is in my master. Because I'm in him, I live for him, I'm living through the strength of him, and one day I'll go to be with him. This whole passage, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through to 16, is really about the twin doctrines of justification and sanctification. Two different doctrines, but yet they're connected, because where there's one, there's always the other. One is the working of the other. And if we've got a full and free and forever justification in Christ... It will lead to sanctification of life and heart. There'll be a desire for holiness. They'll not be careless or indifferent to sin. They'll not be spiritual laziness. There will be this mindset. I have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in my wisdom, my ability, my power, my reasoning. I look to Christ. He's my wisdom, my strength, my help, my hope. There's some of the marks of a true Christian. Worshipping God in the spirit. Glorifying, boasting in the son. And being gracious when it comes to salvation. Stripped of pride. Level before God in the dust. Lord, it's not I. Remember John the Baptist, he must increase. I must decrease. Oh, that we could see less of self. And more of the saviour. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning. And bless them to our hearts.